Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Initiative podcast. Today I'm very excited to have with us Ron Lumsden, who's from Scotland. He studied art at Glasgow School of Art and did his post-graduation certification in education. He taught art for many years in London for the deaf and partially hearing units in secondary schools. Since the early 80s, he has traveled in many places around the world and also lived in many countries, including Bangladesh, India, Japan, and Switzerland. He currently lives in Bangkok with his wife. He's a practicing Buddhist and also the author of the famous blog, Dhamma Footsteps. He is also an author of, with the same name of that book, Dhamma Footsteps, which can be found on Amazon. It's no good to be engaged with this pain. You have to find a convenient place where you are able to, well, you experience the pain, but somehow it's not affecting you so much because you're not actually engaged with it. It's this hugeness and it's this openness to change. It's openness to something new is going to happen. We are the change makers. We are the ones that will make the change locally. And the children grow up knowing that that's the case and they become the change makers when they're adults. Well, welcome, Ron. Uh, thank you for being here. Right. Yes, yes, thank you. So we start our conversations asking about the upbringing of, of a person and if faith or religion have had any role in their early age. So Ron, please, if you can tell us a little bit about your upbringing and if faith played any role in your upbringing. Well, I suppose faith did play a role in my upbringing because you, you can't seem to avoid faith. Faith is always there. But really, in a more general sense, then my upbringing took place in the, in the very north of Scotland. And in the north of Scotland, you know, it's like very, very extreme. In the summertime, it never gets dark. It's light for the whole night. And then in the wintertime, it's total darkness for the duration of the winter. So th this is extreme that we're talking about here. And I think it possibly my childhood was uh, one of extremes. But anyway, well, let's say I didn't establish any link there. And so when I went to Glasgow, then, that, then I had left the north completely. Because Glasgow, of course, if you're in Scotland, is quite different from the north. Then after Glasgow, you see, then I made more connections and links with, through my teaching in London. And uh, then also, of course, I met some very, I was very fortunate to meet some good friends at various meetings. I can't say that religion played a part, but let's say faith played a part. And you see, I studied art, and so I was uh, teaching quite often using cartoons and for the deaf and partially hearing, then these would be linguistic-based, uh, and they would be like, I am walking, or he is walking, and it would be the continuous form, I-N-G, which is the most commonly used tense, and so on like that, you see. And then I applied this to various contexts, and one of them would be for deprived children or children who are left out of the system completely, and that's how I got on to, like, development and, and what's happening in, in these countries with education and so on. And so anyway, I'll tell you later the whole story, but I was very fortunate to meet somebody who 
took me on and I went to India and he helped me get started just on an experimental basis. Without his help, I think I wouldn't have managed. So I was very fortunate in that case. Yeah, yes, that's about it really. Well, thank you for sharing the initial years or the formative years of your life. And I find it fascinating to work with specially able children, people who have hearing disabilities in your case. And, and you need a certain characteristic to be able to work with them, to be able to connect with them. And I'm sure you evolved as a person when you started working with them and, and you worked with them for a long period of time. So I wanted to talk about that experience and that part of your life as to how did it open your worldview when you started with working with such a diverse and gifted group of children? Yes, I think that it opened me up in ways that I didn't expect, didn't ever expect. In the classroom, let's say you're with children who are primary age children, so they're about eight or nine. Say. That, that was the group that I had. Some of them were profoundly deaf and one or two were partially hearing. And they all have their hearing aids going, but of course, because they can't hear their hearing aids, there's this whistling feedback noise all the time because they would call it the ear, I forgot what they call that thing. The socket that they put in their ears is always slightly loose because they're growing children and they have to have ear molds made again and again. So then there's that. There's also a behavior situation because you can't, expect children who are deaf to sort of just conform to what you're doing. So therefore, you have to get their attention. And that was really where I opened up, let's say, as an actor, a performer does on stage, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, then I had an assistant who would help with the little children and sort of point them in my direction. And then I could work with my assistant and getting the whole thing moving. But really, the thing that got them was the drawing on the board. So in the background, I would have a cartoon drawing, which obviously illustrated some story. And there would be some event that took place, and then it would close. And this is like a strip cartoon, you see. And they got used to this idea, and they came rushing in in the morning and uh, you know looked at this thing and studied it. And uh, so it was, it was a way of getting them together. And then I could ask them, what's happening in this picture? What's he doing here? And so on and so on like this. And then throughout the day, there were little opportunities like that and other ways of getting their attention. And I just was learning as I was going along. And these were the very young children, yes. And it's different, of course, with the older adults. Adults are doing that in evening classes. And that was that I didn't really need to do any of that with the adults. It's... Uh, the, they were more involved in just communicating. And yeah, so the little kids were the ones that uh, really, really got me going on this. And uh, that's how I learned. Lots of skills, in fact. <laughs> yeah, we have a young child at home. She's just turned three. And I think we learn way more than she learns from us. <laughs> yes. And I love the word that you used, that you had to become an actor in front of these children because that's what we do. Mm. Yes. But leaving that, that stage after working there for a long period of time would not have been an easy decision because probably the love that you got from all these children would not have been easy. So I want to understand what made you move to the next phase of your life where you left a, a, not just a fulfilling career probably, but also 
something that you were probably enjoying and had become really good at. Yes, it was a decision and it was taken slowly. I mean, I decided to take one year off a sort of sabbatical, you see. Then as far as my career goes, I think that I was going to different schools in South London and it was obvious that I would eventually become some kind of a headmaster or whatever. You know, if there's men usually go in that direction. But I was very much aware that there were plenty, most of them were women actually, and they were very, very skilled. And I really didn't like the idea of me becoming a headmaster in that kind of context. And uh, besides, I had an open mind about all kinds of things around that time. And so this opportunity came up to go to India. And actually, India was the first country I went to, and uh, South India. So I left everything on hold, and I went off to India. And then by the time I had done about one year in India, I was ready for my second year. And I let everyone know back in London that really it looked very much like I was not coming back right away. And I'd like to keep in touch, but uh, really, uh, please let me go now. <laughs> After that, it was a process of discovery. Some of, some of the situations, of course, were familiar, well, because of little kids and uh, the way that they learn and so on. But some of it, of course, was totally new to me, absolutely new. And then you were saying earlier, you learn to be an actor with children, but in this case, really, the children were teaching me. Education is a two-way process. I mean, there's no question about that. And the experience of, of these kids in South India, uh, really, I mean, I had all kinds of uh, concepts and ideas that were just not valid in South India. So I had to sort of forget about all that and relearn it. But again, I was fortunate. You see, I had adults there who were willing to help me, and I had lots of questions, and we used to talk for hours. I had so many questions with uh, my friends there in South India. So that's what happened. Before I left London, there was an idea of writing a book or something like that, or creating a book that children could use. And so I brought that idea with me to South India, and we did actually do something in the end with that. So that was quite satisfactory for me. Yes. So it seems that you we explored a different facet of your mind and, and life and you started enjoying it more and you wanted to go deeper in, in that regard. Yes, yes, yes. You traveled to India and India yes. uh, in 80s would have been a very different country than what it is now, but still traveling from UK to India would have been different and, and you didn't stop there. You continued to travel after that. Is that correct? Yes, yes, right. That's it, you see. And through the the connections that I made in the second year in South India, in the first year I was in Pondicherry and working with a, a small group of volunteers who were part of a French organization, I think, and they were working with leprosy, parents, leprosy patients and the children of these parents. And it was very small and quite familiar and nice in there. And then the second year, I moved up to Bangalore. And then things really started to open up there as regards to the people that I met and so on, discussions that we had. And as a result, I became involved with, a, yes, it was a Catholic group, I think. And there was a French priest there who introduced me all around 
And then our next thing was I was being propositioned to make a comic book uh, that would be suitable for disadvantaged children or whatever, uh, children who had uh, difficulties in adjusting in society one way or the other. And that was left open to me, and that was really the topic of conversation. So it was an exploratory thing for me. And I found it quite hard, actually. I found it quite difficult to do that. I mean, certainly I could produce the pictures and all that, but these were not immediately appropriate to uh, South India. So so I was told anyway. (laughs) And so I had to relearn. I had to relearn all kinds of things. And that was quite hard. That was quite difficult. But I came out with the book in the end. And then there was another one after that, women workers and how they were abused and all this kind of thing that you're familiar with in developing countries. However, the French priest had me booked in for going to Bangkok where I would be able to connect with others in the, in the region as he was. He was connecting with all these individual groups and he was pulling them all together in under one umbrella. So when I met him, he was just gathering people together. And so I moved to Bangkok and continued with that. My goodness, I continued with that for like five years or so. And then I became more involved in what was going on with a particular group on child labor. And uh, yeah, so that was it. That again was another shift. And um, so it evolved, let's say. It evolved and became gradually what it is today. And is that where Buddhism became part of your life, where you were introduced to Buddhism uh, when you were in Bangkok? Yes, yes, right. That was a wonderful time. Well, it was a very exciting time and very dynamic time because I contracted cancer right down in the center of my being. The actual pain was the colonic cancer down in the colon. And of course, I didn't know what it was. It was just a terrible, terrible pain. And then I learned from some individuals about how to approach the whole problem and difficulty of pain. And this was really a Buddhist teaching because all, in Thailand, they're all Buddhists. But I think 99% of the population are Buddhists. And then they brought me, because really they didn't know what to do with me, they brought me to a Buddhist temple in the northeast. And that's called Wat Pananachat. And anybody who's listening here will know immediately that Wat Pananachat is a very important place today. In those days, it was quite quiet. And that is the... the um, That's where Ajahn Chah was doing his teaching, but he actually passed away a few years earlier. So then I met the monks, and some of these monks were uh, European, you know, German and uh, English and American. And so I had a chance to ask these extraordinary young men what this was really about. Tell me, you know, this immense curiosity that I had. And so... I began to wake up the knowledge that I gained in India, the books that I'd read in India about Buddhism, but also about the Brahman and Atman and all these uh, aspects of non-duality, what we call non-duality today. And I hadn't really sort of been able to focus on that so much. But when I went to Thailand and went to Wat Pananachat, then all of this woke up and I realized I knew what this was about. I was absolutely certain that I knew what this was about. So I jumped over hurdles. I just simply went racing ahead. And uh, then I was completely convinced. So I stayed 
there in the temple for on and off that period of like say three months, six months. But my stay was only about a week, a week every three months or whatever. And then I, I participated in all kinds of things that were going on through the same contact list in Bangkok. And so from that time, you see, I'm completely convinced about Buddhism. I'm absolutely certain that this is an important thing in my life. And needless to say, of course, I recover from cancer, and that whole experience of the colonic cancer was part of my awakening in what Pananachat and understanding what Buddhism was really about. Yeah, so that's it in a nutshell, let's say. Yeah. And did you have to go through a medical treatment for cancer? Yes, 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 that's it, you see. In those days, I don't know what it's like today, but in those days, the surgery for colonic cancer was like really quite large. So the whole of the torso is opened up and pulled back. And the entire contents of everything is taken out, as far as I know. Obviously, I was unconscious at the time. And then they sift through this, and the surgeon told me this afterwards, you know, and he found two tumors and he snipped them like and said, Poof, and he made this gesture of throwing it over his shoulder. You see, like that, that's gone, that's passed. And then he found another one and did the same thing. And then everything gets packed in again and sewn up. And then after six months, they open everything up again, you see. And so you have to go through this twice. The first time I should say that. They, they install some kind of sphincter inside, which allows the waste to fall into a bag, a plastic bag, which is adhered to the skin. So you never have to go to the toilet for that duration. And then when you come back after six months, they open everything up and reverse all of that and put you back to normal again. Yeah. So that was obviously a huge experience. And the monks actually were with me all the way through this, and it was tremendous pain involved. And they, again, I found out all kinds of things about pain, which is a very large subject. I've written about it in my blog quite a lot. Yeah, I could talk about pain. I know pain really quite well. And I know people now through the blog that also know pain very well. Yeah, that was it. But really, it was the operation and the actual surgery so on, recovery from that, which uh, had a big effect on me. Yeah, it's interesting that Buddhism came in at the same time when you were going through such a difficult time in your life, and then mm. going not just through the physical pain, but the mental trauma as well, because it's something not easy to work with. And so understanding mm. of the mind and uh, as you mentioned, that you understand pain very well. And, and that's the other thing that you've been dealing with something uh, for the last few years. Would you like to talk about the pain that you've been uh, dealing with since 2014, I believe, 1415? Yes, it's an odd thing. You see, I, I always thought that eventually I would not have to deal with pain anymore because I knew exactly what this was. And I was looking forward to the time, like in the torso, the pain actually in the center of your being. You know, this this is this deep, very very deep pain right in the middle of your body, you know? and that's it's like being a fly pinned to the wall or something. You know, 
eventually, you see, you expect it all to go away. And in my case, it did go away. But then I got this other pain, which came along just, say, a decade after that, when, just when I was getting used to the idea of not having to deal with pain. Then I had this uh, headache situation, which I have today. And it's a pain that sometimes is quite dramatic, but it's not the same as the surgery pain. The pain is caused by, uh, well, it's a kind of neuralgia, and it's on the right side of my head. So that means my ear is affected, and my eye is a little bit affected also. And it's the right occipital nerve, which is about here, let's say, and it's all down here and over on, on top of my shoulder. And this is caused by, what do you call it again? Post-herpetic neuralgia It's caused by... Well, when I was a child in Scotland, you know, we were all given these vaccinations for various things. What was it? It was a flu vaccination. It was, I forget what it was. Anyway, this vaccination that we all got, and I, I've checked this because I, I know a blog with other uh, PHN sufferers, and they, we've discussed this at length. This, for like, say, 20% of adults, the whole thing reoccurs. And what you get, you get uh, sort of abscess and ugly sort of red marks all around the affected area. So I suddenly had all this, see, and I went to the doctor. In, in, I was in India at the time. It was many years later in Delhi. And I went to the doctor, and he was very busy. <laughs> and he said, ah, post-hypetic neuralgia. Yes, okay, here. Here's some vitamins and uh, so on. Like, next. <laughs> and I really didn't know what it was. I, I mean, okay, it would have happened anyway. I, I can't blame the doctor at all for being so kind of flippant in that way. But then when I came to Thailand, you see, and asked the Thai doctors, well, there's this terrific language problem in Thailand, which you don't have, thankfully, in India. So I didn't really get any satisfactory explanation there. So I, I just had to experience this thing and get to know it. And... Uh, Yes, and so, of course, nowadays, I've had it for five years now, and nowadays, I know it really, I know how to deal with it, and I know when I can't deal with it. And I take medicine all, all day, usually. I, I, one day's medicine is all that I can, the body can cope with. It's very interesting medicine because the next day rolls around, everything is passed from the body. There's no residue left of the previous day's medicine. So then you start again, you see, and then you can control or you can exceed or you can balance the medicine that goes into the body. And that does help. That does help. But of course, there are ordinary events that intercede, like you know, as normal, that's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the question that comes to mind is these medicines are helping you with the physical pain, but the mental pain is what you've been mentioning and, and your practices in Buddhism have been helping you to some extent, or maybe the fullest extent, to work through this pain, to go through these difficult times. What are some of these practices? Yeah, well, the only thing I can say about that is that, sure, there are many practices. You can can do things with the breath. You can just focus entirely on the breath, on the in-breath and the out-breath. Now, that's very easily said. But the way I do that nowadays, and this is like after many years of, of knowing this practice, is that I can do it very quickly 
in-breath and out-breath. Now, by the time I do, say, four or five cycles of the in-breath, out-breath like that, the whole system has taken over inside my mind and body. And there's a dulling in the pain. There's a sort of, I'm one step removed from that. And this is something I've learned to be beside it and not actually in front of it and involved and engaged with it. It's no good to be engaged with this pain. You have to find a convenient place where you are able to, well, you experience the pain, but somehow it's not affecting you so much because you're not actually engaged with it. So various versions of that I'm using now just automatically when it happens. And like even during the day, well, even right now, I'm aware of a pain that is circling around somewhere. (laughs) And uh, then I just have to be aware of that and allow that to pass and allow that to be. Then the whole thing, of course, about pain, and I think anybody would say this, is that you learn these things because you have to. You learn about the pain because there isn't any choice. You have to face the pain at some point, and it's like an enormous fire is burning in front of you, and you're pushed back further and further against the wall. And this this great blaze, huge flames above your head, and it's getting nearer and nearer, and you can't get away. And it's that point when you realize that you can't escape, and you go into the flames, because there isn't any choice. You go straight into the flames, And then you discover it's not nearly as bad as I thought it was. There's a sort of pause, this kind of conceptual pause that takes place there. And if you're aware of these things, you're curious about that pause. How did that pause occur? And then the next time that it happens, when you look again for the pause, the same procedure of stepping back into the flames and noticing this pause, That's all that I can say about it, really. It's just a slight change that makes a huge difference. That kind of thing. You know, when I hear you going in the flame, initially I was thinking about that there's an experiencer who is experiencing something, so you're separating what you're seeing. Now you're taking it a step further that whatever you're experiencing, you're placing yourself in the middle of it, but still observing it. And I think it's also relevant that when you have fears, because we're trying to avoid our fears by keeping ourselves away, but you're saying, no, let's take it head on when you don't really have a choice. Right. And that makes it easier. I don't know easier or not, but at least uh, there's no other choice other than that. I think that's extremely helpful. And given that what one is going through in their life, they may not see it that way because of their practices, because of their training, people go into depression, people go into in different ways of responding to pain in their life. Now, coming back to, I just want to understand it a little bit further. Given that your training has been in the field of art, And artists have a beautiful way of seeing the world and connecting the dots and responding to situations. And you've done some incredible work on your blog as well, where you're combining art from from some of the old pieces. And if people haven't seen it, please go in and see this on Ron's blog, how beautifully he has used his art. But your training as an artist, to see that, do you think that makes it easier 
for you to make a decision that, you know, let me try something new or let me see where this takes me. Or sometimes when I think of scientists, you know, they're asking for proof constantly. Like, what's the proof of this? Does this happen? That happens, right? Have you ever thought about how your training is a little different that has helped you prepare for who you are or what you're going through right now? Yes. Well, it's the way one experiences things over the years. If I look back on the time that I was studying art, at that time, I really wanted to be an artist. I was completely involved in that. And this was a wonderful sort of revelation, let's say, about some aspects of myself that uh, were new to me. A lot of it is like that, that you discover so many new things about your thinking and so on. But then, actually, I was disappointed in the end. And that's what made me change. I just realized that the finished work of art was all very well, but surely there was something else here. And I was looking for some kind of practical application of art, applied art in some way. And if it was applied to something else, like, for example, illustration, then it carried meaning from the book, the text that was being illustrated. So then it had the support of that. Without the support of a text or the application that you'd chosen, without any of this, standing by itself didn't satisfy me. I mean, I would work for hours and hours and days and weeks and months and then when I came to the end of a couple of pieces, I really had to think, now, was that really worth it? And then I came to the conclusion I had to do something else. I had to move on. So then I was a teacher teaching children. And then that became rather fascinating. And then I had a good friend who helped me understand what it meant to teach deaf children. And that, of course, I've discussed already. And gradually I moved away from the individual work of art and I was using it as an application, you know, for, as a support system, whatever, as a means of expression together with something else. And nowadays, I, I, I very much art nowadays. I, I have it in mind I would like to do something, but then I don't do it. <laughs> I, you know, I have a great plan and I think, that's what I used to be like before, all these wonderful plans that come to nothing. And so I'm still actually laboring with that in my own mind. And I don't know, I might actually get around to it one day, but so far I'm interested in what the, the result of this is. Because nowadays I'm looking for results. I don't feel that at my age I can start any new projects. It, it's more like, what have I accumulated? What's my accumulated knowledge from this? And so that would probably go in the form of writing, I think. And uh, so there's various things I have in mind in my blog. But my, my blog keeps me interested, especially if I know there are people who are reading it and are interested in it. And I sometimes, there was a time actually before I became very ill with a headache when I was getting so many comments. If you look at some of the earlier ones about two years, three years ago, there's a huge dialogue at the end, you know, of each one. Comments that are developing from other comments and people joining in. And it was just astonishing. And, uh, yeah, so I, that did require a lot of energy. And then I became quite ill after that. And uh, I never really got back to that level. And all these friends are still there. I know they are. 
Well, you know, I would call you the artist of body and mind if, uh, <laughs> if, if I'm supposed to give a title to you. We're coming towards the end uh, of our conversation. I, I do have uh, one last question before we get to the list of small questions. You've traveled and stayed in, in many places. What is one thread that you think ties the human race together? And of course, this is based on your experiences. Yes, that's quite a question, isn't it? Yes. I suppose that if I look at the countries I've been in, they're all, well, I mean, like they're Asian countries, right? But most of them are developing countries in one way or another. Then you have other countries like Japan. And can you say developed for Japan? I think Japan is still developing at a terrific speed. There's no such thing as a developed country. We're all developing, we're all growing. And uh, most of these countries, like, okay, I've been to Nepal, Bangladesh, India, Indonesia, and that's all that I can remember now. But let's say that, let's take that group. I know that group because I did a comic book for them and it was distributed around these four countries. They all have different characteristics, but they're all in this state of developing. They're all in this state of change. They're all wide awake and the people who are instrumental in this whole thing, the local leaders and in Africa, they call it change makers, the ones who create change are absolutely wonderful because they are totally alert to any new thing that comes along. And then, of course, it's up to them. It varies group by group how they apply these things that they've learned. And there are foreign advisors coming in with their whatever they have to say. But most of it, of course, is local. Most of it is known locally because they we're all able to read and learn from what has been written in the past, although not very many of us are actually reading nowadays. Most of us are watching movies. Um, that's the string that would tie the whole group together for me. And uh, then I've included Japan there because well, I was there for two years I know it quite well, but still there's a characteristic there that I recognize that just exists in these other countries. It's a kind of attitude of, let's, let's see, let's see the bigger picture now, you know, that kind of thing. Yes, that's it. And then maybe one last thing here. I notice that when I'm talking with my American friends, and because I come from a small country myself, in a tiny little scrap of land, when I speak to American friends, there's a sense of this hugeness that these individuals are standing on a piece of land that goes for as far as I can see and the curvature of the earth, and it's still America. Now, the same thing goes for India, that there's a kind of consciousness in India of, like, we come from an enormous say, continent here. We're standing on this vast place, and... Like for me, that, that's informative because I come from such a small country. And the Japanese actually are a bit like the Brits, the people from the UK. They come from this small country. And uh, it's this hugeness and it's this openness to change. It's openness to something new is going to happen. And we are the change makers. We are the ones that will make the change locally. And the children grow up knowing that that's the case and they become the change makers when they're adults. And it's so, so it passes on like that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I, I think uh, that's, even though we are changing every minute, everything around is changing every minute. And still there is this desire, this innate need that we want betterment 
of everything around us and i think that's what inspires and glad you noticed that inspiration in not just a younger generation but everyone around uh, let's make lives better around us yes like yes, yes. imagine it so thank you all right so now i have a, a few questions for you which are just a way for us to know a little bit more about you you can answer them in one word one sentence or in one paragraph or even longer however you feel it fit and the first question is a place uh, that you would love to travel to maybe you've already traveled there maybe you would like to travel in the future yes i've done so much travel but now when i when i think of it i think of suitcases and hotels and all that kind of thing but if i were able to go to a country i think it would probably be an asian country i still feel that south india is the place for me maybe the deep south down towards sri lanka So I would like to go to Sri Lanka because it's a Buddhist country and I have some friends there. I've never been. And then, of course, there's also Kerala. Kerala, I've got, oddly enough, most of the NGOs in India are from Kerala. So lots of Kerala connections too. Yeah, that's more than one sentence. <laughs> that's perfect. One memory from your childhood that just sparks joy. The Aurora Borealis. You know what that is? Yes, it's seeing this in the north. I remember coming, I've seen it many times, but this one very dynamic experience was coming by a car and we're coming up to Aberdeen and you just come over a slight hill, then the whole of Aberdeen is available for your visual appetite. The entire thing, and if it's nighttime, all the lights are in huge, prospering town. And then above that, like this most amazing the light in the spectrum of fine raindrops. Yes, quite breathtaking. Yeah, that sounds so wonderful. Yeah, I've heard about it. I've seen so many pictures of it. And I can visualize it when you're talking about it. Our next question is, a person you would like to meet in history, in, in the past? One person, if you have the opportunity to travel back, who would you like to meet? Well, there's lots of people, but I think probably a novelist. A novelist. And actually, I was, the last thing I was doing in my reading, I was reading a lot of crime fiction. I admired the way that these authors were able to, do, to write these stories. And there was a time when I became quite interested in that. Because Patterson is one. What's his name? Robert B. Patterson. Don't you remember the names? Patterson, anyway, definitely was the one. And he was, he was just a crime novelist. And all his characters were the same every, in every book. I'd like to spend, I, like, I would like to have spent some time. He's passed away now when he was at his peak and learned from him. Creative man, a very, very creative man. All right. And one interesting fact about Scottish people and one interesting fact about Thai people. Well, they're, actually, they're both the same in the sense that they are isolated. Thais are very isolated from the rest of the world, you know, because the country was never colonized. And so it had its own way. It had a series of kings. And they never met any foreigners and any British colonial invaders were kept at bay. And I would say the same thing, actually. About, so, so then the characteristic of Thais is that they are remote 
slightly remote. You know, you have to work hard to get to know them. And they don't realize that they're remote either. It's changing, of course, because of what's going on in modern times, but there's that. Now, the same kind of thing happens in Scotland, you know, because we don't really have much to say about the English. You know, the English are the colonizers. They're the ones who, who come and use Scotland for all their happy pursuits of shooting the grouse and uh, so on, what have you like this, you know, and all the lairds and all the aristocracy are actually English, not Scottish, although they call themselves Scottish. So I would say the Scots, in their refusal to accept England, is, <laughs> this is a little bit cheeky, you know, because I know that my English friends will have something to say about this, but they have some similarities with the Pies. That's all in terms of similarities. Otherwise, they're totally different. All right. And your favorite film or favorite song? Any one of the two? I was watching TV last night and I saw Star Wars. You know the Star Wars series? No, I, I feel cheated because I never, I was never able to follow this series of Star Wars. And I'm beginning to understand now what all the fuss was about how good it was. And so I did the Revenge of the Jedi, Return of the Jedi, yes. Star Wars, Return of the Jedi. Last night I watched it now. Of course, it's a dated film, it's out of date and everything, but really fantastic and all kinds of nice visual effects. So I'm going to the Star Wars series at the moment. All right, and one last question. What does mindfulness mean to you? Ah, yes. Well, let's take a synonym heedfulness. It's being, I can't think of anything else. It's being awake and aware of what you're doing all the time, as far as possible. And then you might stop and say, there was a moment there when I was not mindful. Then acknowledging the fact that you were not mindful is the same as being mindful. So then in this way, you're able to sort of double-check everything as you go along about your own mindfulness in, in your work environment and everything that you're doing. Yes, that, that's how it seems to me. I don't know if it fits with Mindfulness Initiative. It's a wonderful title. Well, thank you. I think it fits perfectly. It's exactly what mindfulness is all about, being in the moment. And today in our conversation, we had such beautiful and mindful moments that I'm going to enjoy listening to it a few more times. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Ron, for taking out time to speak to us. Thank you for sharing your life story. It's going to inspire many who are going through difficult times in their life, how to manage them and maybe give them a path or maybe show them the way of fighting through different struggles in life and figuring out how to find happiness, how to live with whatever the current situation is. So I really appreciate you sharing the depths of your life with us. Thank you so okay. much. Okay, thank you, Nikesh. I enjoyed it. Nice to talk to you. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening in to another episode of Mindful Initiative Podcast. If you like and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with your friends and family. We are available on all platforms, 
from iTunes to Google Podcasts to Spotify. Thank you again. Thank you.